Uh, I do want to make one announcement before I, I begin, and that's just make sure you check your bulletin for information about Chad and Sarah Lucasen's uh, visit next uh, Sunday. Uh, we are going to be doing a pizza and game night on Saturday night. Uh, so if you'd like to get to know the Lucasens a little bit better, have a little bit more time uh, with them, you're welcome to be a part of that. Just uh, try and let me know by uh, the day before, by the Friday, so we can know about how much pizza to get for folks. Um, also, you'll notice in the bulletin chat we'll be doing the Bible class next week. And uh, following services, we're going to do a potluck uh, also with Lucas. And so next Sunday will be a potluck, so make sure you bring a pot with some food in it, and uh, we'll have a great time uh, next, uh, next weekend. So we will be looking at Psalm 110 this morning, and it is, for us as modern readers, it's kind of like a treasure hunt. Uh, one wrote, writer said of Psalm 110, to the modern reader, Psalm 110 is full of puzzles. But to the early church, Psalm 110 was full of treasures. See, the thing that's interesting, probably for most of us, if we don't already know this, is that Psalm 110 is the most quoted and alluded to Old Testament passage in the New Testament. In other words, the, the early church loved this text. 33 times in the New Testament, it is either mentioned, quoted directly, or alluded to. That's a lot. And for most of us, though, as we read Psalm 110, we think, well, this isn't nearly as compelling as Psalm 23. If I was going to have a favorite, it would be far more likely to be Psalm 23 than Psalm 110. So we want to find out why this text is so significant to the early church and what message it may have for us. It's an Old Testament text that Jesus himself quoted. It's a text that's referenced in the very first gospel sermon of Peter in Acts 2. It's a text that Paul often alludes to. It is, in fact, the text that the book of Hebrews, if it were based on a single text, if it were an ex expositional sermon, Psalm 110 would be the text that the entire book of Hebrews is based on. It's a popular thing. So we do know that Psalm 110 was written by David twice in the New Testament, Mark 12, Acts 2. The New Testament writers attribute this psalm to David. And at its core, it's essentially two promises or speeches or oracles given by God to what we'll say for now to someone. And so the first promise is what was mentioned in Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the first pressing question then becomes, who is my Lord? To whom does this psalm reference? The first mention of Lord in this psalm is uh, Yahweh. That's the personal name of God. So very clearly, God himself is speaking, and he is speaking to another to whom God calls my Lord. This second Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai. In, in modern English, we could easily say it this way. Is it Lord capitalized? Or is it Lord in a lowercase? And some of your translations will have it capitalized, the second Lord, and some will have it in a lowercase form. The phrase is used 168 times in the Old Testament. 94% of the time it's referring either to earthly lords or to angelic beings. And so there began this original understanding that perhaps my Lord was one of the descendants of David. But yet, one of the things that we come to find by the time we get to the New Testament is the debate is still ongoing about who the my Lord is to whom this text references. It comes up in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. Mark says, while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? 
David himself, by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, and you'll notice most New Testament texts capitalize that there, the second Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how can he be his son? And the large crowd listening listened with delight. So Jesus is saying that there's a common understanding amongst the scribes that the my Lord of Psalm 110 is the Messiah. Now the issue for for Jesus is not if the Messiah is the son of David. Jesus is not making the point that the Messiah cannot be the son of David because Jesus himself is attested to in Scripture as the son of David. He's introduced as such in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. Paul twice in Romans 1 and in 2 Timothy 2 calls him a descendant of David. So Jesus is not saying that the Lord cannot be a son of David. Instead, he is saying the my Lord of Psalm 110 cannot be merely or simply a son of David. That that term alone is inadequate or insufficient for fully understanding who the Lord is. If the Messiah was just a descendant of David, then the Messiah would then be inferior to David. Instead, Jesus is making the point that this Messiah will not be inferior, but rather superior to David. And that's the point that Jesus is making. It is in the first gospel sermon of Acts 2, 38, or 34 through 36, that Peter will make the point of who the my Lord is. And so he says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see, he is pulling together. It's not just that he is the Messiah, but he is simultaneously the Messiah and the Lord himself. And because Jesus is the my Lord of Psalm 110, then what do we know about him and his current ministry? And in fact, what do we know about the status of the world Today, We know from several New Testament texts that the first part of this psalm has been fulfilled, that Christ is currently seated at the right hand of God. For example, Ephesians 1.20, God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So where is Christ right now? He is seated at the right hand of God. But the my Lord in Psalm 110 is invited to sit at God's right hand And then there will be a time period, and then all things will be brought unto his submission. So the question for us is, have all of the enemies already been made his footstool? And I think the most complete and precise answer to that is no. That aspect and that element has not yet happened. We are living in what the New Testaments call the end times. In the language of Psalm 110 verse 1, we are living in the midst of the until. He has been seated, and currently what is being happening is God is in the process of making all of the enemies the footstool of Christ. See, what we have then is this awareness and this knowledge that we today are living in the final chapter of this story of humanity. And we know that every page that turns, we get one page closer until all things have been made his footstool. But what we do not know is how long it will be until God makes that final movement, until all is submitted to Christ. So the current status is known. Jesus is seated at the right hand. 
Sitting in the Old Testament is a mark of honor and authority. When the king would come in, everyone would rise. Those who remained seated were treated with extra dignity and honor. And being on the right hand means that Christ has superiority. He has favor and honor and privilege and preference. That's Christ's existing relationship right now with the Father. But the psalm also shows us that the future is sure and complete. God will make all of Jesus' enemies a footstool. To, to be a footstool is the re this reference when kings would go in and they would conquer other kings. They would lay them on the ground and they would put their feet upon their necks as a sign of conquest. That those were submitted to them. So this picture of, of the king sitting there with his feet upon the others is a sign of full and complete conquest and subjection. And we do know the New Testament reaffirms that this will happen. Psalm or Philippians chapter 2 verse 10 it says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. We know what will happen. All people, all people will end up in subjection to this king. But Psalm 110 verse 2 also says that there are two ways that this is going to happen, that people will find themselves in subjection to the king. Now, maybe I've watched too many movies, but it sounds to me like there's a hard way to do this and there's an easy way to do this. And the hard way in Psalm 110 verse 2 is that he will rule by the mighty scepter. In other words, he will use his power and his conquest and his dominion to show his authority over all people. This is reiterated in Revelation 19.15. Speaking of Jesus, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's that same scepter. He will tread the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So the hard way is to refuse, to rebel, and when Christ comes with the rod, all will be subject. But there is also in Psalm 110 verse 2 an easy way. The easy way says that people will offer themselves willingly. They will voluntarily subject themselves to the rule and to the authority of this king. They will not be forced into that position, but they will do so voluntarily. We see again this notion brought out in Romans 12.1 where Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Some will simply present themselves to the king and to the dominion of Jesus. But what we do not know is how long this until phase will last. There is work to be done until Christ will reign in his full power until all enemies are subjected to him. We get this sense in Acts 3.21 where it says, Jesus must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration that God announced long ago through his holy prophets, there is more still to be done. We get the same sense in 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and following, where Paul writes, For he must reign until he has put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And when all things are subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. So we live in these in-between times. The first part of Psalm 110 verse 1 has been fulfilled. Christ is now seated. But what is happening right now is that the Father is in the process of putting all things in subjection to Him. 
And it should force ourselves to ask, will we subject ourselves willingly or through rebellion to this ruling king? But so the question becomes then, if Jesus is the Lord of Psalm 110, then what is he doing now? Does Psalm 110 in any way inform us what he's up to? Because for some of us, this picture of sitting gives us this notion that Jesus is now disengaged from the world. That, that he's now just, just resting and, and relaxing and waiting. It's that second part of this psalm, the second promise, the second oracle that gives us the sense of what the Lord is currently doing. So Psalm 110 verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so we'll look at Hebrews as a useful text to explore the ongoing priestly ministry of Jesus. Jesus' kingship, we have found out, is greater than David's. And we now realize that his priesthood is now also greater than Aaron's. Jesus' priesthood, in fact, is modeled after this guy named Melchizedek. And if you say, I've never even heard of that guy, Melchizedek, well, that's because he's rarely mentioned. Uh, In the Old Testament, he's mentioned in Genesis chapter 18. And then he's mentioned in this Psalm 110. And in the whole rest of the Old Testament, he's never mentioned again until the writer of Hebrews has this love affair with Melchizedek and mentions him over and over again. What is important coming out of Hebrews in reference to Melchizedek is, first of all, that he was, Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. And so that's where we see this imitation of Christ there. The Bible doesn't mention Melchizedek having father or mother, so he was not a priest by his biological line. Some would dismiss Jesus as he cannot be the priest because he's not of the tribe of Aaron. And the writer of Hebrews says, look at Melchizedek, he was a priest, but he also was not of the lineage of Aaron. And because of how the New Testament writers see the entrance and exit of Melchizedek in the Old Testament, they viewed his priesthood as being eternal and everlasting. And so too, Jesus' priesthood is eternal and everlasting. He is priest forever, which means that the priestly duties of Jesus are ongoing. Jesus is not on vacation, but he is fulfilling these priestly duties. We get the sense of the two of the priestly duties coming out of Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 3. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, ministering in the sanctuary in the true tent that the Lord and not any mortal has set up. For every high priest is appointed to, number one, offer gifts, And two sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So, the first part of Jesus' priestly ministry has been completed his sacrifice. What is unique and significant about the sacrifice of Jesus was that it was once and for all, and it is eternal, and it is everlasting, and there is no need for it to be repeated. As I said in Hebrews 10 19 through 21, therefore, my friends, Since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, the priest's function was to to mediate the relationship between a holy God and an unholy people. And Christ, through his sacrifice, has brought us into the very presence of God. 
And when we go into the presence of God, we go with the confidence and the assurance of knowing that we've been granted access by Jesus. So what Jesus is currently doing is he is mediating that relationship between us and the Father, granting us access. But there's a second thing that the writer of Hebrews said is a responsibility of the priest, and he said offering gifts. Language we'll use here is the blessings. See, one of the functions of the Old Testament priest was to offer a blessing to the people. God uses the priest, and through the priest, God will bring his blessing upon the people. And that's something we find also with Melchizedek. Genesis 14, verses 18 and 20. It says, And Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So the priest must have gifts to give to the people. He must bless the people. And we find that played out in Acts chapter 2, verse 33. Again, Peter's first gospel sermon, where he writes, Therefore, being exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. So what is his first priestly gift to the people? It is the gift of the Holy Spirit. That he gives to the people. The Holy Spirit to be the eternal and abiding presence of God. The Holy Spirit being the very tabernacle of God that is living within us. The Holy Spirit being the very one who indwells and fellowships with God's people. The Holy Spirit who enacts all of the promises and the privileges. That becomes the gift that the priesthood not only poured out, but through Jesus is continuing to be poured out upon his people. But there is a third responsibility of the priest. This one mentioned in Hebrews 7, 24 through 25, and that is that he intercedes for the people. Hebrews 7, 24. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I want you to think about this picture of the priest making intercession on your behalf. I think about John 17 where Jesus prays over his disciples, that, that, that prayer of unity. And we often go back to that to talk about how Jesus prayed over his disciples. But what we find in Hebrews is that Jesus is continuing to intercede for his disciples today. Have you ever thought about that? We pray to the Father through the Son, but the Son is on our behalf interceding to the Father making petitions and making requests known to the Father on behalf of those who follow him. And he does that as a part of his priestly duty. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 34 and 35. Who is to condemn? Is it Christ Jesus who died? Yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine famine or nakedness or peril or sword. See, all of these things, Paul is saying, cannot separate us from the love of Christ because Christ is interceding for us. He's making petitions and requests to the Father on our behalf. And he is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Many of you know that uh, several years ago I was detained in Papua New Guinea for several days for a visa-related issue. I did not do anything illegal. 
And for six days, I tried as best as I could to, to contact the appropriate offices in the government, to meet with the appropriate people, to plead my case, to explain my situation. And after six days, I had an entire collection of nothingness to show for my effort. I finally was able on the seventh day to make my way to the Australian High Commission who handles all Canadian citizens' issues. And I sat down and I talked with a lady. And within five minutes, she was on the phone with somebody in the government and said, Mr. Ford needs to have his passport and he needs to be allowed to leave the country. And within 24 hours, I could. Because that's what a mediator can do for you. That's what somebody who intercedes on your behalf can do. They can accomplish something you cannot accomplish on your own. They have resources that you do not have. They have connections and contacts that you do not have. Imagine knowing the second most powerful person in the universe, the one who sits at the right hand of God. And he intercedes for us. I personally cannot imagine going through life without the forgiveness that my high priest offers. I cannot imagine going through life without the gifts that my high priest offers. I cannot imagine going through life without the intercession that my high priest offers. So I look forward to the day when all enemies will be brought in subjection to God the Father. Amen. And when that day and that hour comes, I can only hope that I will have but one phrase on my lips. Praise be to God the Father. Praise be to God the Son. And praise be to God the Spirit, for they have done it. See, today I have told you how the story ends. And the only question remains, what role will you play? Will you choose the easy way to voluntarily submit yourself? That's what the waters of baptism are. It is a place where we submit ourselves to the kingship, to the rule and to the reign of God. See, there's a reason to be excited about that day because there will come a day that when God returns, that all who are opposed to Jesus Christ himself will be put into subjection. May we all choose to do that willingly. This morning you'll have that opportunity. There'll be some of us in the back if you want somebody to pray with you this morning. If you want to talk about what it looks like for you to voluntarily subject yourself to him, uh, there'll be that opportunity as we, as we sing a song in just a moment. But I do want to offer um, a blessing. And as I read this blessing, an Old Testament blessing, a New Testament blessing, we recognize that it is through the priesthood of Jesus Christ that this blessing is brought upon us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And as we enter into a world that we know is in many ways hostile to the kingship of Jesus Christ, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's stand and sing together.